I really like that feeling of just achieving, but based on my own goal. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. Hello, Anoushe. Welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I am really looking forward to this chat because I think I'm going to learn a lot about climbing, which is something that I've tried before and failed at. And you are the perfect person to learn from. (laughs) So I can't wait to hear all about it. I think trying and failing is probably my motto. So we'll go with that. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. So the first question that I ask every single guest is, how do you refer to your disability? Oh, interesting. I think it depends on the mood I'm in and what I'm going through and which disability is playing up, really. Uh Um, I think as a until all my invisible illnesses took hold and and started disabling me, um, I really was. I really did consider myself differently abled. My little arm didn't really change my ability to do things. So, um, and I didn't realize that was a, a, a bad term in terms of a lot of people don't see that as a, as a good term. It's an able washing term yeah. as, back in the day. But as a kid, I used to just call myself differently because I used to do things different and I didn't have other disabled people around me to talk to. I had no other role yeah. models. Um, I lived in Luxembourg, really small country, very few people. There was one person who had a, uh, an arm that didn't work. They had their arm, but it just didn't work. But they were like 40 years older than me. Yeah. That was it. Um, and then, um, yeah, I have invisible illnesses. Uh, I'm chronically ill. I am disabled by my illnesses. So I am mm-hmm. disabled. I'm happy to say that. But I'm definitely not a person with a disa- disability. I'm a disabled person. Yeah, because it's so interesting, the conversation around person first or disability first language. And and for me, I find it, whilst it's interesting, I always just find it's it's almost a bit much. And I feel like a really bad person saying that because I feel like part of me shitting on part of the disabled community. But I think sometimes you just kind of got to be like, yeah, I'm disabled. It's maybe not the like most important thing about me, but this is what it is. Or a person with a disability, I'm not necessarily sure I 100% understand the difference between the two. And I think that's probably quite a difficult place to be. I think there's a, I think it's a question of ownership between the two for yeah. me. I Because I used to call myself person with a disability until maybe three, four years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I definitely went through that phase uh, and I've changed it now. And I might change it depending on who I'm speaking to. If it makes, uh-huh. if I'm giving a talk to a really able-bodied crowd, it might make it easier for them to understand person with disability than disabled person. Um, uh-huh. Less of a jump for them uh, often. Um, but I find it's, it's often agency and ownership for me. So person with a disability is... I'm a person and the disability is is there, but I'm not necessarily owning it. I'm a person with a disability and I don't necessarily get on with it. I haven't owned it. It's a new space for me. I'm really struggling with it. Yeah. Maybe there's some denial going on. Maybe there's some shock and some trauma going on around there. Yeah. And I'm still processing what is happening to me. Mm-hmm. Disabled person, often they're owning it and they're often rocking it as well. Or there's a level of acceptance and grief that's happened and they're through that and they're on the next phase of their life. If it's something that they, you know, that that is, you know, I don't know, God forbid, terminal, something like that. 
where you know it's 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 not great um but i feel disabled person is, is somebody who's owning it a bit more yeah and i think that's a really lovely way of, of just like describing the difference between the two because i think that'd be really helpful for a lot of people because like i said i don't always understand the difference between the two because in my head it's like i'm just disabled and like it's grammar yeah <laughs> like it is interestingly what was it like for you as a child growing up with a disability and also as you said growing up in Luxembourg which like you said is a really small country and there's only maybe like one other person you knew that had some form of disability but it wasn't the same as yours um it was good I mean my parents as I said I I was born missing my right one below the elbow so and my parents obviously knew that they were going to need some sort of peer support to help them out so they got in touch they used to live in the uk before so they got in touch with reach uh charity for upper limb yeah. um different children um and they effectively um helped my parents out in terms of saying look she's going to be fine um and i I've obviously got pakistani heritage i'm part pakistani as well um and it means there are some cultural elements to disability that do happen in our culture which are maybe like oh you know it's it's not right to say, but oh, you're disabled. You know, maybe your parents have done something wrong. You know, what have you done yeah. wrong in your life? Um, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. So there was definitely, I think, that pressure on my parents. Yeah. Um, which which meant that they pushed me really hard, actually, in a good way, like yeah. in a nurturing way. Uh, but effectively, for them, nothing was impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it meant that I was baking really early, like using sewing needles and thread far too early as a kid um <laughs> in sports um uh you know I I was basically just chucked into everything and uh-huh. allowed to but you know basically my parents allowed me to decide where I wanted to thrive in that sense like but I would yeah. thrive <laughs> yeah. whatever I would do wherever that was going to be whether that was going to be um school or non-school whatever I was going to thrive they were going to find things that meant I could things and they were going to work on my weaknesses part of the reason they got me my mum got me sewing and baking so early is because I was having fine motor skill problems um Uh so what she did was she got me quickly doing things I enjoyed yeah like it turned out I enjoyed them great but she got me very quickly into working with my hands and and getting around all those skills picking things up dropping things working with cookies things like that you know putting beads on a thread all that type of thing making it fun but effectively rehabbing me really really early (laughs) yeah it's so funny isn't it because I really resonate with what you say about like your parents chucking you into everything because I had the exact same my parents were literally like do everything like try everything and see what sticks and you know flourish in whatever area you know you feel like you're doing well exactly and exactly there was no if I didn't like it it, there was no pressure to do it at that point yeah right there was I think I think that's what I love about it it's um you know, you could see I didn't like it, but if I liked it and I wasn't good at it, they would still support me. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think there's a lot to be said in like just doing something because you like it, because we've come so used in this like hustle culture that everything that you do, you have to be good at where actually I think there's so much to be learned in doing something just because it's fun. Even if you're really bad at it, like there's so and, much more learning in that. And also, and I said, I've said this in a, a number of my blogs and and, and a, in a campaign I, I did with this girl, Can. If you're going to be new at something, you're very rarely going to be good at it. Yeah. So yeah, if you're so trying true. something for the first time, 
don't expect to be good expect to be bad and enjoy the experience yeah exactly like expect to be kind of rubbish at the start because everyone's a beginner at some point you're very rarely going to be super talented at everything you try um i think that's that's very rare um and i've seen it happen and a few times at the climbing wall in six years of teaching i've seen maybe one two people come through who've just had a natural talent yeah and picked up extremely quickly and you know are now at elite level climbing but that is so rare mm. expect to not be good at something just enjoy the learning that comes with that enjoy the process enjoy the lack of pressure because yeah. if you're not good at it there's no expectation for you to be good at it so you can you can surprise people if you fancy it yeah, exactly. And and I love that. I love that take because I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, like everyone was a beginner at some point. And actually the only thing that you get good at is something that you practice and like you can't expect to dive in and be amazing at something straight away. God, no. For you, how did you get into climbing and how was, how, where did that journey start and how did it evolve? Because I'm so interested in this. So the journey was a fluke journey. Um, so I was eight, went on a school trip with uh, well, with my school. We went to France and there was a climbing wall there and um, I'd never seen one before. And I was like, oh, big wall thing. I'm, um, I'm not scared of heights, but I'm scared of landing. But at the time it was translating to I'm scared of heights. Yeah. Um, because I don't know how to land. I'm still, I've got a phobia of landing, funnily enough, not of uh-huh falling and not of heights um but it took a while to understand that um so when I had to go up uh we just went like traversing um but I actually freaked out um at about a meter above the ground because I I I couldn't come back down because I was I was freaked about the idea of landing on something yeah Um, and then we had to actually get harnessed up and and all the way up up and um, so I went up and I got up about halfway and I came down um, and I remember my my school teacher who's now Facebook friends with me um, was crying because I think for her she never imagined I'd be able to get up that far and yeah. she'd never seen somebody do that so for her it was kind of like oh my god this is a bit of a miracle cool moment um, and for me I was like yeah it was fine it didn't it was, do yeah. anything it was, it was fine it was enjoyable I guess um but the next day we got to go back um to the climbing wall and what I'd noticed is all my friends had gotten to the top and there were these big circles that you could tap once Uh you'd finished and I didn't get to tap the circle on my first attempt I really wanted to tap the circle on my second Uh um and I got up and I tapped the circle and I really enjoyed tapping that down um I really liked that feeling of just achieving but based on my own goal yeah I wanted to do something and it gave me a real sense of like it was really pleasing to me something that attracted me so I came home to my parents I'd like to become a climber and they went not on your nelly it is too dangerous um we don't know anybody else who climbs and you're literally doing martial arts right now I was just transitioning from competitive swimming to becoming well starting martial arts and hopefully becoming competitive and over the years to come so no uh, and every now and again, I would, um, you know, ask them, I go climbing? No, I go climbing? No. Uh, at 13, we went on a family trip and there was a climbing wall with an instructor. So I got the okay to climb for an hour and yeah. enjoyed it. Um, and the instructor was telling my dad, look, he clearly enjoys it. You should, you know, you should go for it. And, and no. Uh, and at the time, I was already competing in martial arts. So, meh. Um, yeah. uh, fast forward 10 years. 
Um, you know, I had to drop martial arts when I was 16 due to my joints misaligning. We didn't know I had EDS at the time. Yeah. Um, the dropping of the sports led to a loss of muscle, which meant my EDS got much, much worse, which meant I started having surgeries from the age of 18, 20 um, on my hand. Then I had to have my thumb fused for a couple of years, a couple of months. Um, so no yeah. showering on my own, no bathrooming on my own, none of that. Um, just as I turned 18 as well, which is not ideal. Um, and then, uh, you know, 21 back surgery and then 23 cancer diagnosis. Yeah, um, that's a lot. and I, you know, finished chemo and stuff. And, um, and what happened was, um, I, I hadn't done any sports. Like I'd done sports. I tried loads yeah. since I stopped martial arts. I loved martial arts. I still do. Um, but nothing had quite held me like martial arts did. Yeah. Nothing was mentally um, there. I wasn't in, you can go to a gym, but it didn't do anything for me. Um, and then um, one of my best friends, um, he went on the same school trip as me when we were eight, who did become a climber, who'd been trying to persuade me for years to climb. Sort of went, look, why don't you come climbing with me? And I went, you kidding. Because the problem is the cancer treatment had caused um, damage in my left arm. So I have mm -hmm. lymphedema. I have trouble raising it above my shoulder now. Um, it's yeah. painful. It's even painful now. So things like, um, you know, brushing my hair, showering, hair drying, uh, mixing pots in the kitchen when I'm cooking, yeah. all of that is painful. So raising my arm at, at a shoulder height or above is a problem. It's just uh -huh. physically painful um, and I've lost grip strength. So uh, I, I sort of said to my friend, and this was like, I just finished chemo. I was struggling. I didn't have, my hair wasn't back. My eyebrows yeah. weren't back. Like I was wrecked, not just physically, but spiritually wrecked. And, and I told my friend, you've got to be nuts. Like suggesting of all the times to try climbing now. Yeah. And she went, look, I've hundreds of sports and nothing has worked. Your left arm needs to get better you are going to lose your independence if your left arm does not get better. Climbing is going to force your hand to go above your head. Mm -hmm. Like you are going to get strong in those positions. And, and I said, but, but I can't do my harness up. Like I can't grip my harness anymore. And she goes, that's fine. I'll do that for you. And I was like, well, I don't know how to do my knots. And she's like, right, you've never learned how to do your knots. And now you're just being scared and you're trying to find excuses to yeah. get out of it. And 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 that's just you being scared. I'm like, but the harness is going to highlight the bits of me I don't like because when it squeezes, it squeezes your tummy and your legs. So if you've got a big butt or something, it's going to highlight it, right? Uh -huh. um, and, and I was really body unconfident at the time because obviously I've just been through loads of stuff and surgeries and all sorts. Um, and she just went, look, you're just, you know, you're making excuses up. You're just, you're just scared. Um, look, think about it this way. What's the worst that's going to happen? The worst is you try another sport, you don't like it. Yeah. Right? It doesn't yeah. stick. Right? It will be like any of the other hundreds you've tried now. The best is you find something that changes your life. Yeah. Couldn't really argue with her on that point. Like, even if I wanted to argue, she, you know, it was a mic drop moment, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. So we went climbing. <laughs> and it was awful. It was really bad. Like, I could barely get up anything. Um, I, I didn't get up anything at all. Like I got up a few moves and that was it. Um, and it was painful. Uh, you know, my toes hurt, my hands hurt, everything hurts. Um, you know, I was out of breath 
so quickly on everything because again I was post chemo and really yeah. unfit um and I'd had a I developed a heart rate issue post chemo as well so it just wasn't ideal um and then but the one thing that stuck or struck me was um because my, my I mean my friend has all four limbs she moves very differently to me on the climbing wall and when I needed to replicate a move like she did on the right side I had to adapt so much yeah. that the actual thinking process of coordinating my body balancing timing um and it didn't have to be a strong move it could be like something really delicate and dainty like it didn't require strength as much as the stuff I was on required a lot of just movement yeah um it didn't require me to be strong. It just required me to be willing to move. Um, that all of that processing, I forgot I was ill. Mm-hmm. I forgot I just had cancer. I was just a climber. Yeah. For a precious few seconds in that session, I was just me. Yeah. And it was that feeling that made me go back to the gym and start training cardio. Uh, a couple of years later, I moved to London for work. Didn't know anybody in London, didn't have any climber friends. So I'd just go back to Luxembourg every few, couple of months to see my parents and at the same time catch a climbing session with my friend. It was never going to be more than a hobby. Yeah. Do it, you know, have a climb, go have a Sunday lunch sort of situation. Never more than that. And then a couple of years living in London, I realized I was really missing it. So I went off and did a taster course at a, at a climbing wall. Um, and then I moved in with an old flatmate who, um, who who wanted to climb and had heard about this awesome centre in North London. And I was like, hey, I've just done my taster course. And she's like, well, I don't know how to do my knots. I'm like, OK, I can teach you. And so we went together and decided that that was going to be the thing we were going to do socially. And it was something that we were going to be bad at together. It was never an intention <laughs> to something well, what it is now, effectively. It was just going to be a social thing. Yeah. Um, and within a few weeks of this, Reach contacted me and said, look, there's a climbing competition at your wall in three weeks. I mm. went, well, I'm not going. I'm not going. I can't. I used to compete in martial arts. I used to compete in swimming. And yes, I hadn't competed in 10 years. I hadn't trained in anything in 10 years. But I, I couldn't do that to myself. I couldn't for me because I've had a background in that. It wasn't all levels, all abilities climbing competition. You could actually turn up as a beginner and you would find something to climb on. Absolutely. But for me, I felt like I needed to train. So I got a coach a couple of months later. And we went in um, 2016 and started training and competing. And yeah, I ended up ranking second in the UK that year um, in my category, right? So like, obviously not out of all the power climbers, but in my category. Uh, And it was just, it just, yeah, basically snowballed a bit. Um, That was, that was it. It just, it just, it it became infectious. Climbing wasn't just a hobby. It became a lifestyle. uh most of my life revolves around that still um so you know I'm sitting next to my climbing wall in my office um you know (laughs) if that doesn't say something uh you know I met my husband in a competition he proposed at a competition (laughs) so he climbs um so like it just it became a thing um you know I I started blogging about being new to climbing and you know worried about body image and and that snowballed into regular blogs and podcasts and um it just it just completely changed my life (laughs) yeah and I think what's so important about what you said and something that really again that I really resonate with what you just said about adapting 
Because what you said, like, you know, how you're talking about how it wouldn't have to necessarily be like a massive movement. It would just, it could be something very delicate and you would just have to almost fine tune it and change it. And that's the exact same for me because obviously, oh God, everybody knows if you listen to this podcast, I do CrossFit, like I love CrossFit. And it's the exact same. Things might not be like a big movement, but I have to find my ways of adapting to it. And it could be ever so subtle, but working using your brain in that way you're right it completely takes you out of you know the things that you're thinking about and you're thinking you're focusing on yourself and how you can do this movement to the best of your ability and it's about nobody else around you but you and yourself and how you move and that's so important and so key I always tell people when they ask me if I meditate or uh, I say I can't sit still I can't. I'm just not that sort of person. I, I really struggle sitting, sitting in silence and sitting still. Yeah. But when I'm on the climbing wall, it's effectively active meditation because when you're in that zone, there is nothing else that exists. And you are so present in the moment that it is forcing you to escape your world for a bit. And I think it's so immensely healthy to do that. Yeah, I I like I completely 110% agree. And yeah, in any sport will do that. Any arts and crafts will do that if you find that thing that works for you. It doesn't have it can be baking. It can be any activity. If you find an activity that can do that for you regardless of what that is, right? Coloring, it, it, the world is your oyster in terms of the number of activities that are available to, for everybody to try. But yeah. if you can find that zone, not only are you going to be mindful and present in the moment and develop and uh, like a practice you're actually going to give yourself a breather from your regular life yeah. and the stress that comes with your regular life yeah for sure interestingly you said that you have eds and i know a lot of people who also have eds and i was wondering for you what was the diagnosis process like because I know a lot of people who have really struggled with their diagnosis of EDS and what I'm learning more about it is actually the process for a diagnosis is uh, nothing short of horrendous. Yeah, I think disaster is probably where I'd go with that. Um, I mean, if you look at my life history, I think we probably should have diagnosed me when I was like two and based on just um, the you know, I had all the typical gastro symptoms already from age zero. Um, mm. I was having gastro symptoms. Uh, shoulder was already popping out. So I had to stop martial arts um, popping out. Put it this way. I was losing count of how many times it was popping out by the time I got it checked. Yeah. Because I thought it was a fun trick, which I showed to my parents and my parents totally disagreed with me. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I thought it it was not painful. It was I popped it out for fun. That's kind of that's kind of where my shoulder right was at. Shoulder yeah, okay, I used to so pop it out for fun. I can also pop out my right shoulder, which also happens to be the arm that like doesn't exist. So that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's really common in limb different folk to be able to do funky things with their little arms. <laughs> yeah. um, like it's just a thing. But the fact that I could dislocate it that quickly uh, with no pain um, was a little bit worrying for people because there were also other signs and symptoms that I might have been hypermobile in other joints. Yeah. And other things were also popping out, but maybe that's more painfully. Um, yeah. So, um, Luxembourg, honestly, too small a country at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, they're now becoming more EDS where there's an actual EDS Luxembourg. So that's kind of really cool. They formed last year. Yeah. So that's kind of really nice to see that happening now, but back in the day, definitely wasn't something that was recognized. 
Um, it was only when I moved to London and actually got referred in because I've been under prosthetic services all my life. So I got referred into my prosthetic services and they happened to also have specialist CDS people there, uh, doctors and stuff. And so the, my spe- my prosthetic services were the ones who referred me into physio. Wow. Because they could see just how, um, so often with EDS, you'll find um, if you haven't degraded as a child, then you'll degrade around significant hormonal or life um, changes. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, my first big degradation will have been pu- puberty. Uh-huh. And my second big degradation was the move to London post chemo because I moved to yeah. London a year after chemo. Mm-hmm. So effectively, it was a lot of very big physical changes for me, both the chemo and the treatments and the recovery and doing my master's, but also the actual move to London and learning to live on my own again. Yeah. Um, so um, all of that had actually caused a degradation in my symptoms. Um, and effectively, by the time I got to refer, got into referral to prosthetics, they were the ones who noticed that I was hypermobile um, and um, referred me to physio. And they were the ones who said I need to get referred into a specialist. And it took two and a half years uh, for the waiting time. And we were literally biding our time in physio because it was yeah. very clear. It was, you know, I was getting, I was physically active, but I was getting so many injuries um yeah. at the time I wasn't climbing um and yeah got to my doctor and I literally walked into the room and she just went yeah you have EDS I didn't even have to wait like she just went you walk like a person who has EDS <laughs> yeah. um it was it was quite funny and in fact I was with her in Rome last weekend um uh to give a talk at an EDS conference about pain uh wow. so uh now we're out people know who my doctor is <laughs> but, um, uh what I mean to say is like I mean we have a great relationship and it's it's amazing and she's so supportive but uh, I'm happy to refer me on to other specialists because for me it's not just EDS that's my, my problem I've got uh-huh. loads of autoimmune problems going on I have other malformations in my body uh, which are now coming to light um that we didn't know I had. So my arm is definitely not my only malformation. Yeah. Um, so um, like the good thing is I'm in, I'm now in the system, but not only that, I've got an amazing doctor who's happy to listen to me. And also my doctors are very aware. I think a lot of problems that happen with people with EDS is they get gaslit because it's yeah. a non-tangible condition. It's very hard to see on scans if there's a problem. Most people with EDS won't necessarily have like, malformations in their joints or things like that which would be contributed to problems yeah um, they'll just have you know it's it, depending on the type obviously the type of eds you have so obviously there's like 14 types um the most common of which is the hypermobile type and that's the one where people are having the most problem with diagnosis because mm-hmm. that's the one that's least tangible and you know you've got everything from oh you're a bit bendy to oh you have hypermobile spectrum disorder to oh you have eds yeah. depending on how yeah. how impacted you are um and, and where things are going so that's where the problem is there's no clear um they're still working out the diagnostic criteria they've changed them again recently mm-hmm. um um which has you know messed some people up completely in terms of where they are in the diagnosis routes um the, with the other types of eds their impact are very differently um they're much more serious eds's mm-hmm. um you know vascular and things like that but the prognosis are very different as well for them so you know, so far from what I've heard as an EDS UK ambassador is the diagnosis for them are better, but they also need to be because those ones are frankly more dangerous and more life limiting. Yeah. And like, I just, 
I find the conversation around EDS so so interesting because you like you said it's so common but it's not because there's 14 different types so it's again it's an umbrella term like a bit like disability disabilities this massive umbrella term that everybody thinks that we all fit under and actually it's so individual to the individual person and the EDS is is kind of the exact same and it's it's always interesting to have those conversations And that's why I make it a point to actually talk about the other EDSs as much mm-hmm. as I talk about hypermobile now, because actually I, I gave an interview last year um, and, and I always talk about every EDS, but I, I, and I had mentioned the other EDSs, but mm-hmm. I got pulled up on it by a lot of EDSers kind of came onto my profile and sort of, sort of went, you didn't do enough. <laughs> and I went, okay, guys, like I, I tried, like I'm not a perfect yeah. person. Um, you know, I had five minutes to shoot out something on the BBC or ITV or whatever program I was yeah. on. I didn't have a lot of time. It's very hard to get a sandbite in there. All I was trying to do was raise awareness first. Yeah. Um, and then if I have the time, I get out and, and do more. Um, but yeah, now I'm like, no, there are 14 types. That's, that's you know, you, you know, and the hypermobile type where, you know, where I can say the hypermobile type is the most common. Uh, that doesn't mean that the symptoms are less valid or less dangerous or less, you know, they can absolutely yeah. lead to dangerous symptoms and stuff like that as well, and dangerous complications. But again, we've got different prognosis. Going on. Yeah. From, exactly. Again, from what I understand, I am not at all here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I personally believe that through any form of like hardship, if you can look back and notice a positive in yourself, then I don't want to say it's been worth it because I think that's very like making something trivial out of something that could be very difficult. But if you can look back and and notice a really positive attribute in yourself, then it's then something good has come from it. And I was wondering, have you noticed a positive attribute within yourself through any times of hardship? Um, so I'm totally a silver lining girl. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which means, yeah, inevitably, um, it doesn't really matter what the hardship is. Um there will be something positive that comes out of it. Even if I've got to go through hell and back to get through it, um, there will inevitably be something good that comes out of it. I, I have faith in that. Um, um, so yeah, uh, whether that's positive for me is in like something about me, maybe something about my resilience, something about my ability to cope, something about my ability to self-care. Um, uh, maybe it's something I've learned that I can share with others. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just you know, uh, coincidence. Um, you know, I wasn't planning on moving to London. Um, mm. It just so happened that personal life changes meant that I mean, a move to London was going to happen. It just yeah. so happened my personal life changed so much that the reason to move to London didn't exist anymore. I still made the move to London despite all of that. And actually, it's changed my life completely. Um, that's a huge silver lining. I mean, I would never have become a climber. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be who I am today. I would never have met my husband. Um, you know, there are so many good things that have happened out of what ended up being a very difficult circumstance. Yeah. Um, right. How cool is that? Yeah. I love that so much. Is that I think I'm going to say that like, I'm a silver lining kind of gal. I love that so much. Yeah, but I am because like it took years for me to to be grateful for that experience. Yeah. Years. And I'm still upset and angry about that experience to some extent. But also, I'm extremely grateful because it would never have, I would never have moved to London. Yeah. I would never have found a job I love. I would never have been trying to juggle effectively now three jobs, um, you know, because I've got, you know, my, my day job, public work, 
and climbing training. Uh, yeah. So now three jobs. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a bit of a juggle. Um, but it's just, it's just, it, none of this would have happened. Yeah. You know, I, I still would have probably been a bit lost, frankly, if I hadn't made the move. Yeah. I think like, yeah, like you said, silver lining kind of gal. I love that. So. It, and it doesn't have to be a big silver lining. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. It doesn't have to be. It a big doesn't thing. have to be a big. It can be something like, I'm really grateful. I have a really comfortable bed I can sleep on. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Or I'm really grateful that I'm able to get up today and make myself a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Like on a really shit day. Sorry, can I say that word? Yeah, good yeah, job. Okay, cool. Sorry, never <laughs> know. On a on a really really shit day, it can be something so small that somebody can be grateful for. Mm-hmm. Right, but that can just turn the mood of that day just a little bit and make that day just that little less crap yeah for sure so I like to ask it's kind of a two-part question I really need to figure out how to reword it so it makes a lot more sense but you'll get the gist so do you have a piece of advice for a younger version of yourself and a younger person with the same disability as you and they can be two separate pieces of advice because generally they tend to be two separate pieces of advice when you talk to like your younger self. Yeah. Um, you are more than you think you are. Oh, I love that. Um, and keep believing in your impossible. Oh, I love those. They are so good. <laughs> that I think it's always so important to you know, particularly when we think about younger people with disability, I feel like, and I'm may, maybe you feel the same, I'm not 100% sure, but looking back when I was younger, if someone had told me like all these pieces of advice, I think I probably would have listened at some point and like been like, yeah, like things are possible. And not that I ever believed that they weren't possible, but I always knew that I was creating something for myself that I didn't see. And now we have more representation because of social media and Instagram and, and, you know, just better representation in general, even though that's a bit questionable. But these pieces of advice, I love collecting them for, for someone else. So I do a lot of work. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to the Duke of Edinburgh Youth Ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of work with the next generation now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm working with my generation, but I'm also working with the younger generation. I've always been a mentor, like since I was a, you know, since I could start mentoring effectively, yeah. I was already mentoring. So it's something that has always been something I want to do. But y- you're right, like there is more more representation. Again, let's caveat it with all the beautiful caveats that come with that word, yeah. right? Because it's it's a loaded term and it's a loaded problem, let's call it. Um mm-hmm. And again, I'm probably not using the right word there, but okay, let's load. Let's just call it loaded uh, and park it there. Um, <laughs> um, but the reality is, yeah, social media has helped. Like, I didn't know any other Muslim climbers when I started climbing. Yeah. I didn't know any other hijabi climbers when I started climbing. I was the first one that I knew of in my climbing centre and that I knew of in London or mm. possibly in the UK. I have no idea. There's so many more now. And it's amazing. Um, I didn't know any other power climbers when I first started climbing in, in the UK. Um, I met my first power climbers when I went to my first climbing competition. And then there was like 
20 of them and I was like, oh my God, my brain's going to explode, right? Yeah. I was overwhelmed, not just by the fact that the center was massive because I nearly fainted at the sight of it, um, <laughs> but also, no, because the thing is, it's, a, it's, in a, it's in a ravine. So they so built a glass you. thing on a ravine. Yeah. And when you go in, you go in on the fifth floor. So you have to look down to see where you're going to start climbing. No, from. thank you. I'm just going to tap out now. <laughs> and I went, I looked and I went in and I went, I remember going to reception. I went to sign in and, and sort of say I'm here and find out where the other paraclimbers were and all the rest. And they were running an able-bodied youth competition with like 150 kids as well on the same day. So there were loads of hovering helicopter parents, all of that going on. Yeah. And, and I'm just, you know, I didn't have my parents with me or anything. I had family friends with me, thankfully. And I remember uh, going to reception and we're here, but where's the actual climbing? And they're like, just look out the window. And I looked, my friend went, you've got really white in the face. I'm like, yeah, there's a reason for it. Um, so, you know, the, the, it, definitely in the last six years, um, I think m- more people have gotten more confident to use their voices, regardless of how they might be perceived or judged. And that, I think, is the biggest shift change we're seeing at the moment in our society, yeah. that the people who don't get heard are making themselves heard. Um, and and it takes a lot of energy um, mm. for the people who are in that space to be doing that because um, you've got to deal with your own imposter syndrome. You've got to deal with the fact that you might think things are impossible, but you're going against your own um, internal self-doubt to deal with yeah. that um you're taking on potentially the responsibility of being a role model yeah. um in, in fact probably are taking on that responsibility and and whether you realize it or not that is a heavy responsibility yeah um you know, whether you're aware or not that you are a role model when i became aware of that um like after i won my first award in 2017 and i, I got told i was a role model i was like oh i would have let that sink in for a couple of days because yeah I didn't realize that. And that was actually quite heavy mm-hmm. for me. That's quite heavy to, to yeah. understand that and understand the ramifications of my actions do have an impact on others. Potentially yeah. that's a heavy thing to think about. That's not a small thing. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like, dude. Um, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, especially when you're out in social media, you are held to account in a, I feel in a bigger way yeah um then because you are held to account that's by in some cases by people who are very insecure behind a keyboard yeah keyboard warriors they love a good they love a good comment i know I, i'm trying not to use that term so i'm trying to i'm trying to i'm trying to be kind and, and call them insecure people behind keyboards i quite like that it's a lot nicer than a I'm, keyboard warrior <laughs> it's it also it also implies i i firmly believe if somebody has if somebody is being a keyboard warrior then often it's because there's something going on in themselves that's yeah. troubling themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Hence why I'm trying to change my own wording around people who are insecure behind keyboards because actually, or people going through a lot behind their keyboards because they wouldn't, why would anybody go out on social media to be mean if something wasn't troubled in themselves? Yeah. In some way, you know, it could be a really frustrating day at work. Or it could be a really frustrating day out of work. It, it could be anything going on, but it's meant they've had to go out and lash out because they have no other space, no support system. Yeah. They're not being heard. They're isolated. Um, they've had a really shit day in a hospital appointment. I don't know. But what else would cause somebody to go out and be mean unless they're genuinely mean? Fair play. But otherwise, you know, 
um, you know, because you get them too, right? But yeah. what else would cause somebody else to troll? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? There's yeah. got to be something fundamentally going wrong in somebody's life to do that, right? Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. I, I do completely agree. So for me, I recently had someone ask if they could, whilst out at dinner, they asked if I, they could cut up my food for me, right? And there's also like a other certain like <laughs> questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's a lot, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I haven't had that happen to me in a long while. So this is where I'm going with this. Is there a particular set of like questions or comments that you have to laugh at or you kind of like you shrug off or you just think like, oh, I'm I'm like, I don't need to have this conversation again. Do you have a particular set of those questions that are like often quite weird and wonderful? Well, the problem is I have the experience of now three disability worlds i was Uh born missing my right arms visibly disabled to start with yeah living with invisible illnesses where my health degraded where i needed adjustments where i needed adjustments for things people couldn't see Mm -hmm. and then i'm now an ambulant wheelchair user as of the last year so a hell of a learning curve around that yeah because i am too young to be in a wheelchair according to a lot of people on the street um Right. So I've become, according to some people I know, the angry disabled person. Uh, <laughs> Not because I'm angry about using my chair. No, God, I love my chair. But about angry about the reaction that I'm experiencing in the street, just the yeah. chronic stress of having to go out. Because it's honestly, some people are really shit. Um, yeah. So it's not pleasant. Uh Awkward things. Um, well, I've become a bit braver since becoming a wheelchair user in terms of challenging said awkward things. So I was on my way to the job. Uh, I don't know, it was the height of the summer, just, just after the first heat wave. And um, I was on my way and uh, we have this lovely little suitcase system on the back of my wheelchair. So we add a suitcase on the back of my chair and then um, I, we can go to the shops, pack the stuff in the suitcase and come home. So it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely fantastic. And we were on our way and my suitcase had dropped off my chair. My husband was with me because we were, you know, um, I was about to go on a big trip and my husband was, we were testing out all sorts of stuff. Uh-huh. make sure it all worked before I did it um situation and so he was fixing the suitcase back onto the chair and this guy is standing outside a pub um he's got a shirt on but it's like an open front shirt so like you know rocking yeah. the abs and whatever else um going on or attempted abs I guess um and and he comes up to me and he sort of goes can I ask you a personal question Oh, I tell you, hate it when that happens. Like, because you know, inevitably, whatever is going to come out next is not going to be good. Yeah. Um, and I was honestly really frustrated with the suitcase <laughs> and the fact that not a hundred meters before somebody had parked their damn car on a dropped curb. So it took me ages to get off that dropped curb. So I was angry anyway. Yeah. Um, so I decided to go and entertain the question. <laughs> And just see what would happen because I was just in a mood and I was like, do you know yeah. what? Let me be a keyboard warrior in real life. Um, so I decided to just go, I'm, you can ask me the personal question. I don't guarantee you that I'm going to respond. Yeah. And I certainly don't guarantee that I'm going to respond in a very friendly way. But you can ask the question. Yeah. I'm just caveating that you might not get a very pleasant response. Um, and, he, and he asked me, you know, stuff about my arm. And, like he asked me, you know, how, you know, was I born with my arm or whatever else um, and something else. And, and, I, and I, you know, or how, I, some really weird, like, how does it feel to be born at my arm or some really awkward question like that. You know, it wasn't just normal awkward. It was like awkward, yeah. awkward. 
So I went on and went, well, you know what? Has anybody ever asked you why your belly button is shaped so weirdly? <laughs> or your nose is so long? Or why you have weird eyebrow hair? I mean, how would you feel if people came up into the street and asked you about why you have a nose hair that you haven't plucked out? Like, why? And how would you feel about that? And he goes, I'd feel really awkward. I said, yeah, so why are you asking me that same damn question? Yeah. And he goes, oh, I didn't mean to be rude. I said, but no, but you are being rude. Yeah. And that is rude. So next time you go ask somebody a really personal question, ask yourself how you would feel being asked that question and see whether you're going to ask it. So yeah, lesson learned, moral story taught. Oh my God, so pissed off. (laughs) But actually that's a really like perfect example of using your voice. All right, like you said, like you were a bit angry and whatever, like shit had not necessarily gone your way, you know, a couple of minutes before. But actually it's such an interesting way to be like, actually the questions you're asking me are completely like, they're dehumanizing because you wouldn't ask anybody else. Any They're inappropriate. Like you just, you don't need to know the answer. You wouldn't ask somebody in the street. No, yeah. no, exactly. You don't need to, nobody needs to know about, um, you know, yeah, sure. I'm a public figure. I have plenty of stuff in blogs and in podcasts on in interviews that people yeah. can find out about if they really wanted to. Like I'm not shy about sharing certain things about my life. Yeah. Right. Absolutely not. But there are certain things that are completely off limits, my fertility included, as an example. So that's a question that comes up a lot. You know, you know, you're married, you've been married two years, when are you going to have children? I think that's just such an inappropriate question to anybody. It's just such an inappropriate question. And, you know, for anybody who might be going through any sort of difficulties around that, it's a traumatizing question. Yeah, of course. Question that shouldn't be asked, especially if you're thinking careers, anything like that not okay it's just we do it way too much in our society and it's not just at disabled people um yeah. i just think disabled people get it worse because we are dehumanized yeah um, in my chair people talk to my husband not me yeah right um you know i might pay for something in a shop they still give him the bloody receipt yeah i mean what the hell is that right <laughs> yeah and the but thing is, is it's not the it's not the first time i've heard this either and it won't be the last time either, because I know plenty of people who have this experience. And it's uh, it's the dehumanization. Please. It's the um, oh yeah. It's the level of you know thinking that disability and sometimes you know people seem to equate disability and learning disability and you know complex neuro neurodivergent issues all in one. And that's why this whole umbrella term of disability, like it's great, but it's also absolutely horrendous because we're not all the same and it doesn't all equal the same thing for every single person. I mean, I had a kid once, this was when I was a kid, um, and, 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 and once told me, you know, the reason your brain doesn't work is because you're missing half an arm. Right. This is, the, I mean, this person ended up, was in, so this person isn't like, somebody I know so I'm not going to go further into what ended up happening as a consequence of that yeah. in terms of like because that they were told off quite significantly by some certain adults so what I'm saying is there was an action that took place as a consequence because yeah effectively they got they got told on uh by friends um but what I'm saying is yeah <laughs> you know equating uh, a visible physical difficult dis- disability with any sort of other disability and it, it's wrong on it, but that's because disability itself is such an umbrella term yeah. Um, and we're so often badly portrayed in the media 
not portrayed in the right right way. Inevitably, now with social media, we're learning to use our voices. But often, like how often am I on Twitter complaining about airports? It's you know they broke my chair two weeks ago. Um, so how often am I complaining about you know on Twitter complaining about things rather yeah. than I'm celebrating things too, but I'm often complaining about things on Twitter. I mean, I'm, I'm a great place to get customer service. Um, <laughs> it, it genuinely is. But it's just it's just that sort of thing. I remember pre wheelchair pumps, pre pandemic. Um, uh, every now and again, I'd use the Transport for London. Please give me a seat, Arch. Because yeah. every now and again, my symptoms were so bad, I needed to sit down. And frankly, um, you know, it was just easier doing it that way. And um, and and I, I you know, I put on the badge, and because I didn't want to have to ask for a seat, you know what I mean? You just yeah. get tired of being used, doing all your emotional labour for yourself, right? Um, and you know, if you're if you're needing the badge, you're probably feeling so shit anyway. Do you really want to go ahead and do your own emotional labour, right? Yeah. Um, so I get onto the tube, and 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 they asked for a seat, um, and and I I did this, I did this as an experiment for a few weeks, so mm-hmm. I tested it. If I was in a t-shirt where my arm was visible, I'd get a seat immediately because the person would look down to my feet, look up, stop at my arm and offer me a seat because apparently missing an arm means my legs don't work, right? Because that's the only reason they'd give me a seat, right? Yeah. Not sure where that logic is there. But if I was in a big bulky jacket, they'd ask me why I needed a seat. Yeah. And I did this. I did this for about six weeks on the trot. And I just experimented with it. I tried different tops. I tried different jackets. I tried different T-shirts. I tried carrying a bag. I tried not carrying. I just literally varied the circumstances and just decided to see what people's perceptions were. Yeah. And it was really fascinating. I was about to say, I bet my arm was more visible. It was great. And definitely taught me that if I just get make my arm visible, I get away with a hell of a lot more. Um, (laughs) it's, It's not ideal, though. Um, and, and, and in fact, this happened to me um, on the weekend I was moving to London for my new job. Um, the, the, the way the things had happened was because I didn't have my start date and I needed to have surgery, I got the surgery done and uh-huh. told them, look, um, if my start date comes in the next 10 days, I can't make it because I'm, I've literally got stitches in my right arm. Yeah. Um, and, and turned out my start date came in the day after the bloody surgery. So, um, you know, sort of and all the rest of it, so it's law, right? So yeah, I, I called up and said, look, I'm, I'm coming in, but, you know, just you know, I, I have to organize special assistance, not because I needed a wheelchair in an airport, but because I actually couldn't physically use my right arm because it still had stitches in it, which yeah. meant I couldn't, my right arm's the workhorse, especially post-chemo, uh, which meant, you know, getting suitcases off the luggage trolley, all of that stuff was just not going to be an option. Yeah. Um, um, and I remember getting out of the plane and special assistance was waiting for me and they said, are you the one who needs special assistance? I said, yeah. And they said, well, we're not giving it to you because clearly you can walk. It says it all. But funny enough, I was back in Heathrow two weeks ago, um, two, two weekends ago, coming back from Rome, special yeah. assistance. But now I carry my own wheelchair in, yeah. in, in through flights, right? So my chair goes into the hold. We take the electric parts of my chair that go up into the cabin, whatever. So it, I'm a confirmed wheelchair user. There's no need to need to revalidate any of that shit. Yeah. I come out of the plane uh, because I can walk. I'm an ambulant wheelchair user. When I am ambulant, I can generally walk quite well, just not for very long, not for very far. And, yeah. you know, God forbid I need to turn any way besides straight, um, you know. And and 
And, and the person there starts walking away with the, the assistance chair because they're like, you can walk. I'm like, so I have my wheelchair around for fun? Do I? Is this, is this you know, I've made this, you know, my life's thing to carry around a wheelchair yeah. for fun. Maybe I balance it on my head because I'm that good at doing things. I don't know. Yeah. What on earth? <laughs> yeah. What on earth? This is nine years on since my last difficult experience in that airport with special assistance. Yeah. Not my only difficult experience in the last few years with special assistance, but the same bloody attitude. Yeah. Has and nobody learned anything? Yeah. And it comes down to that like level of education, level of training that just isn't there because people see disability as this one monolith. And if it doesn't fit into that, then it's, it, you know, it's not, it's not worth it. But it's also, it's also a level of judgment mm-hmm. um, and a level of lack of empathy as well. So that hence why I'm proactively, when I do encounter really difficult situations, I try and teach in them. So the dude at the, in, outside the pub, he decides yeah. to ask the inappropriate question. The reason I've taken to doing it that way and in a more teaching and sometimes condescending way is consequence, but teaching ways, because actually people don't understand people don't self-educate themselves about disability so yeah if we aren't doing it the world is not going to change and unfortunately that means we have to take on that emotional labor but the reality is life's not going to change without that um at least I don't think so yeah with all of this being said I have one final question for you and that is can you say that you're disabled and proud oh totally totally (laughs) Um, for me, disability, my disabilities are firmly threads in my tapestry of life. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be me without them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have learned to adapt without them. I wouldn't have learned to be resilient without them. I wouldn't have found my husband without them. Yeah. I wouldn't be doing three jobs I absolutely love without them. Mm-hmm. Right. They have given me so much more. Yeah. Society can be shit. Yes, we have system, 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 uh, what's the word? Systemic. Systemic, that's the one. Systemic issues in society that need dealing with. Yes, often I feel disabled by barriers in society, social mm-hmm. model of disability than, than the medical model. Saying that, I've met some of the best people in the world. I've yeah. spoken to some awesome people. I've helped change some people's lives because of my own disabilities. Yeah. I've had opportunities to teach and train people who are now on the GB power climbing team. Um, I've had opportunities to get little children who are really shy to use their voice. Like I've helped people get diagnoses for conditions because they've been worried about how to, how to, how to word things with doctors, Um, like learning how to advocate for themselves. Um, It's amazing. Like, I get to be the change I see in the world. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't be able to do that without disability empowering me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard sometimes. Don't get me wrong. I will have a good old rant on some days. Yeah. But it's also bloody amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. I have really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned a lot from it as well. Um And thank you for giving up your time and just like having this chat with me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Disabled and Proud. If you've enjoyed the show, then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us to reach more and more people each week. Plus, if you've got a particular highlight, then I'd absolutely love to hear it. Tag me on your Insta stories at Disabled and Proud Podcast.